This is the month, and this the happy morn, wherein the Son of Heaven's eternal King, of wedded maid and virgin born, our great redemption from above did bring, for so the holy sages once did sing. For he our deadly forfeit should release, and with his Father work us a perpetual peace. This is an excerpt from On the Morning of Christ's Nativity by John Milton. And I thought it would be appropriate for use this morning because it's a good reminder that beyond the good food, beyond the presents, beyond the family traditions, beyond the hustle and bustle of the season, we are here this morning to celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the reason for the season. And what I love during this season, one of the things I love during this season, is the way that we read the scriptures and how the Old Testament promises that God gave to Israel are fulfilled here at Christmas. Long had the world been sitting in darkness, waiting for and anticipating the light. And it's true that humans got little glimmers of this light throughout history, We can think of right after Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3.15 when God promised that their seed would crush the head of the serpent. We can think of our reading today from Isaiah 9, which speaks of a coming child who would deliver the people from darkness. Still, these were but faint visions for those people who received these prophecies. But as St. Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. And that is what we celebrate today. The fact that God has stepped into space and time to undertake the greatest rescue mission in human history. On Christmas, we remember that the Messiah has visited us and that he will make the world right. Now, our reading from Isaiah 9 this morning is a messianic prophecy, and partially it was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. It will be fully realized when he returns. Now, there are some who read this passage, Isaiah chapter 9, and they say that it's not about Jesus at all. In fact, they say that it's a prophecy, that, that it's, a, it's a coronation liturgy that was composed for the accession of King Hezekiah or King Josiah or one of the other kings of Judah. And it may be that the king of Judah at the time of Isaiah was a type of what was to come, but this oracle is clearly, clearly much more about much more than just a human king. The psalmist warns us not to put your trust in princes, but the figure to whom Isaiah refers is one who brings light to the people who walked in darkness and who dwell in the shadow of death. Further, if this passage was just a coronation liturgy, why is Isaiah looking for a child, a son? Most of the kings who ascended to the throne were not babies. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And finally, while the Israelites thought highly of their kings, they would never have identified their kings as God. But that's what Isaiah does. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This cannot be about a merely human king. If Isaiah isn't writing about a human king of Israel in his day, then what does it mean when he says the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, first we could point out that the, government, that the government Christ carries is the Davidic kingship. We know that God promised David that his seed would reign on the throne of Israel forever. And that promise has now been fulfilled through Jesus Christ, who reigns over the church. 
but the government shall be upon his shoulder, was most often interpreted by the church fathers to be about the cross. This signifies the power of the cross, which at his crucifixion he placed on his shoulders, Justin Martyr wrote in the second century. Tertullian, who didn't live long after, asked, What king is there who bears the ensign of his dominion upon his shoulder and not rather upon his head as a diadem or in his hand as a scepter or else as a mark in some royal apparel? But the one new king of the new ages, Jesus Christ, carried on his shoulder both the power and excellence of his new glory, even his cross, so that according to our former prophecy, he might thenceforth reign from the tree as Lord. By becoming incarnate, Jesus puts to shame human reason and attempts to grasp power because he manifests that the power of God is in the things we would deem foolish. Who would have thought that a Jewish baby lying in a trough in the first century occupied Palestine, who was later executed as a common criminal by that occupying power, was God incarnate. This is exactly what our reading this morning points to. Actually, not from this morning, the reading from last evening, Philippians chapter 2, who being in the form of God, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. And yet in this humility is how we find peace. Jesus is the prince of peace, Isaiah tells us. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Now, the peace that Jesus brings us can be read in different senses. There is a final sense in which he'll bring peace when he returns. Isaiah is talking about this when he talks about the weapons and objects that are typically used for war becoming fuel for the fire. They'll be obsolete and unnecessary. But I think experience tells us this is a future reality. We aren't there yet, though we could be at any time. There is, however, a present sense in which Jesus brings us peace by becoming the incarnate God-man through his birth, life, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, he makes relationship with God possible. And when we as creatures are in full communion with God, we experience a peace which passeth all understanding. And this is not because things are always great for us, quite the opposite. Because even in the midst of the worst circumstances, we know that we are securely in the love of God. And we know that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you can experience that peace. I can experience that peace. Our family members, our friends, our neighbors, and everyone we come into contact with can experience that peace. We can experience this peace more directly when we encounter Jesus in the scriptures, when we encounter him, when we receive the sacraments. Here's a cool thought. I was thinking about this as I was writing the sermon. The Holy Scriptures were written by human authors in particular times and places. Isaiah wrote at a certain time, he was writing for a certain audience. It's also true at the same time that the Holy, Scripture, Holy Spirit was actively involved in the writing of Scripture, and he knew that you were going to pick up the Holy Scriptures at any given moment 
and which passage you would read and all of the life circumstances that were surrounding you as you picked up and read. And I think that's important because it means that scripture is a way that God communicates with us. And the same is true of the sacrament of the altar where we come week after week after week to be nourished by him. He knows where we've been. He knows what our struggles are. He knows where we're going and he gives us exactly what we need. And so we can trust him. We can trust him because he is the ruler of creation, ruling all things from the tree. He's not an unpredictable despot like the pagan gods are. If you read the myths, Zeus is a really horrible character. He's not unreliable like human rulers. Put not your trust in princes. He's God of God, light of light, who was born in a trough, who died on the cross for you. When we really grapple with who the baby in the manger is, we can rest in the peace that he imparts to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.